by the power of the Holy Spirit working through word and sacrament. Then we hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. My friends, it's just that simple. It's in the divine service that he's there for you, that he delivers the forgiveness. That's where he promises forgiveness will be. Uh, and so it, that's why it's so important uh, to be in church. We long that God would answer the prayer when we pray, deliver us from evil. Get me out of here. Get me out of this sin-filled world. And that is Jesus Christ uh, who says, Do not count their sin against them, for my blood has paid the price for that. Now on 95.7 FM, it's Proclaiming the One with Pastor Clint Poppy and Pastor Adam Moline from Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline, Vicar Daniel Golden. Each week we come together to look at the upcoming readings for our Sunday worship. Today we're going to be looking at the readings for the 18th Sunday after Trinity. 18th Sunday after Trinity. Our introit selected verses from Psalm 122. Vicar Golden, take it away. Give peace, O Lord, to those who wait for you, and let your prophets be proven faithful. Hear the prayer of your servants according to the blessing of Aaron upon your people. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Psalm 122 and selected verses there. There's one word, Pastor, that just keeps jumping off the page as we heard those words from our introit, and that is peace, peace, peace. Give peace, O Lord, to those who wait for you. Before we, before we talk about the connection between waiting and peace, and I think that, that first verse begs that, um, Give me a little bit, I mean, when I think of peace, I think of the absence of fighting, the absence of warring. A, uh, a husband and a wife are having a squabble, and all of a sudden they stop for whatever reason. Maybe, maybe it's a fake peace. They just are off in the corner and not talking to each other, or maybe they're, they reconcile and they have a peace. You think of... Um, uh, two countries that are at war, and they sign a peace treaty, an armistice, where uh, the, the hostility is gone. Um, is that the same kind of peace that we're talking about when we read God's Word? Well, I, in a way, I guess you could say, yeah, it's that same concept just between two different parties. And the two parties that are involved in conflict and war and fighting, uh, so far as Scripture is concerned, is uh, God and humanity. And uh, we call this conflict sin. And basically what it is is that we have gone against God's Word and failed to listen to it and uphold it and live by it. Um, uh, by our fault, our own fault, our own most grievous fault. And so when we have this word here, give peace to those who wait for you, and we're talking about peace throughout the entire intro, what we're talking about is um, remove sin, end the conflict between humanity and God, and allow there now to be peace instead of dissonance. Um, 
Allow us to live by your word rather than by our own word. And this is accomplished then and fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus uh, as he goes to the cross, bleeds and dies for forgiveness of all sin. Uh, and as he says from the cross himself, it is finished uh, at the death of Jesus. The conflict is over, um, even though uh, as we live our day-to-day lives, we still are facing some of the battles and conflicts that result from that. In the end, we know what the the end result of this conflict is victory for God, uh, forgiveness for us, and now there is peace in Jesus. And so uh, that's kind of a way to think about this idea of conflict and peace. So what you're telling me then is whenever I see the word peace in the Bible, this is either a direct or indirect reference to the forgiveness of sins earned by Jesus on the cross. Am I hearing you right? Well, I, you know, I would say many times when you hear the word peace, you can use that. I think there's other places like uh, when Abraham fights the war against the number of kings and they finally come to peace. You know, there, there are those direct references to battles uh, that take place in Scripture. But when we're talking about uh, God and his people, this is the idea we're talking about. Okay. So give peace, O Lord, to those who wait for you. Um, all Christians, in a sense, are waiting. Uh, we're waiting to die. We're waiting for Jesus to come back again. So connect those two specifically for me with regard to people who wait. And we hear that theme a lot in the Psalms. Wait for the Lord, take heart, wait for the Lord. Wait for uh, the Lord more than watchmen, wait for the morning, Psalm 130, yeah. The, so, so what is the connection between waiting and peace? Well, uh, throughout all the pages of the Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, we see uh, beginning with Adam and Eve's fall into sin, God makes promises, uh, promises that this war will be brought to an end, promises that there'll be forgiveness, promises of uh, eternal life restored to humanity all through the offspring of Eve. And uh, that promise is passed on throughout the generations through Noah, uh, through Shem, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob, uh, David, uh, all the way down to the person of Jesus. And so throughout the Old Testament times, people had this promise from God, and what they're waiting for is the fulfillment of that, uh, which comes about, as we talked about a minute ago, in Jesus, uh, suffering, bleeding, and dying, and rising again uh, in Jerusalem uh, in the year you know, 30 A.D. And so all the time period before that, people are waiting for the fulfillment of that promise. And even us now, we're waiting. We know the fulfillment has taken place, but we're waiting for that uh, fulfillment to be realized by us. Uh, it's the same thing, you know, in, in wars. There might be a peace treaty that's signed, but it takes time to disseminate that information to all the people still fighting on the battlefield. And that's kind of the way it is now. We're waiting for the final fulfillment of the peace that has been won by Christ to be brought to us. The second line says, let your prophet prophets be proven faithful. Vicar, what does God's word tell us about, in general, how you can know whether a prophet is speaking truth or whether a prophet is speaking lies? Whether they are speaking the word of the Lord or not. If, if the Lord speaks to them and tells them to speak, whether it came to them by the way of a messenger or by the word of the Lord himself, that word is truth. And that's how they're proven to be faithful, especially once it becomes true. So a prophet is 
judged by whether he is accurately conveying what God told him to convey. Uh, it seems to me, Pastor, there are a couple of other places where it says uh, if a prophet says something's going to happen and it actually does happen, then you can trust that prophet too. Does that tie into what we're talking about here? Yeah, definitely. Uh, the true prophets are still looking ahead to the promise of God as a uh, uh, God has brought throughout history, and so we see places like in Isaiah, uh, a true prophet, where he is talking about the suffering servant. Uh, we see uh, places like in Daniel, where Daniel sees the coming of the time of the Messiah. Uh, we see uh, in all the prophets, you know, you get into the minor prophets even, their prophecies that are about Jesus, and as they're waiting, they're hoping that that promise is true, and they're trusting that it is true, and that God will fulfill fill what he has promised uh, through these prophets and throughout all the Old Testament. I want to take that one step farther to the ultimate prophet, Jesus, who says, uh, destroy this body and three days later, or destroy this temple, and three days later it will uh, be rebuilt, talking about his own body. Can I make that leap to, uh, to the uh, prophet of all prophets, Jesus Christ? Yeah, I think you can, and even... Um John the Baptist kind of being the last Old Testament prophet, uh, pointing to Jesus and saying, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, we hope that's true, and, and we, praise God, sitting on this side of the crucifixion, know that it is true, and we understand it to be true, and we know that God has kept his word. Uh, and so then our, our eyes look ahead to the future, where God promises to return again and bring this sinful world to its end. A little bit later in our text, uh, the introit portions of Psalm 122, it says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Vicar, what is the connection between this peace that we've been talking about here so far in this segment and going into the house of the Lord? What's the, what's the connection? Well, the Lord gives us peace in a certain place by certain means of grace, and that's through word and sacrament. So we go to the house of the Lord. We go get up on Sunday and go to church so that word and sacrament, that peace can be given to us. And that peace, I would argue, is absolute uh, absolution. Okay. So once again, when we hear peace, we think forgiveness, forgiveness of sins. Um, Pastor, it says, for my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. Now, that line takes that peace, and it almost gives like a special dimension to it. We're not talking about some outward kind of peace, but peace be within you. What's the significance of that within you phrase? Well, um, we go at right before that, we see Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Uh, when we're talking about peace being within you, we're talking to Jerusalem there. And uh, uh, the idea being that peace will exist within this city. Um, and then also, uh, by extension, we as Christians can say we pray that peace might be within the church and all those who confess the true faith that worships Jesus as the Son of God crucified and risen. And uh, we... We all oftentimes use this particular 
uh, psalm and these words at the graveside, uh, reminding people of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, that this person whom we're putting into the grave will rise again and live forever through Jesus Christ so that we might have peace in that hope and in that knowledge that we might be certain knowing what things are taking place. And so all these ideas are brought together in these verses. I want to say peace be within you is a picture, a metaphor, a description of faith. What do you think? Yeah, uh, that's what faith is, right? Trusting God's word that you have salvation in Jesus, and that you will live forever uh, in peace, comfort, and joy, where um, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, will neither hunger nor thirst, the sun will not beat down upon us, nor any scorching heat, uh, but the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be our shepherd. That's the hope we have, and that does bring us peace, no matter what difficulties and challenges arise in this world. Peace with God through the forgiveness of sins. Peace of heart, peace of mind, Because we know that we don't have to strive after anything, climb the ladder of uh, salvation or any of that kind of nonsense. We can be at peace with ourselves because we know Christ has died for us. And then having peace with God and being at peace within, we can strive to be at peace with one another living out this forgiveness of sins in our homes, in our churches, in our neighborhoods, where the forgiveness of sins and the peace that can only come from the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, is realized among us. We are looking at the readings for the 18th Sunday after Trinity. We just looked at the introit, Psalm 122. And when we come back from our break, we're going to look at the Gospel reading, Matthew 22, 34 to 46. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. Salvation unto us has come by God's free grace and favor. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. We're looking at the readings for the 18th Sunday after Trinity. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Golden, privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. The gospel reading for Trinity 18 is from Matthew 22, 34 to 46. And uh, before... Before I have Vicar read this, Pastor, I just I want to give you a little bit of a heads up. It says, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, uh, I want to know what that's all about, that first line. So, Vicar, go ahead and uh, share with us Matthew 22, 34 to 46, the gospel reading for the 18th Sunday after Trinity. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Okay, so we have a lot of uh, skulldudgery going on here. Can I use that word? Uh, like I just did. Uh, Vickers impressed that I even knew what it was. Um, we we have some gamesmanship going on. Uh, earlier in the chapter, we have it with the Sadducees, and now we have it with the Pharisees. And then uh, Jesus flips the table on them, and at the end, they're quiet. They can't play the game anymore. Uh, Pastor, I gave you a little bit of a heads up. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, how had Jesus silenced the Sadducees. What was that all about? Well, even before we get to that, it's important to know who the Sadducees are. That will help us understand how Jesus silenced them. The Sadducees were the upper echelon financially that lived in Jerusalem. They were of the uh, Levitic tribe, and they were oftentimes the priests that worked in the temple. They were the head of the Sanhedrin, and the high priest was always a Sadducee. Uh, the Sadducees had abandoned part of the promise of God, the part about a Savior, and they trusted instead mostly in the promise that God had given them the land. Uh, the I'll give this land to your uh, descendants uh, forever and ever, uh, which God did say, but was only part of the promise, and that was their emphasis. They do not believe in miracles. They do not believe in afterlife, spiritually speaking. They do not believe in resurrection, bodily speaking. They believed once you were dead, you went to Sheol, and you didn't know about it. You were just dead. And so that's who the Sadducees are. Jesus silences them just a few verses before our gospel lesson begins uh, because they ask him about the resurrection, which we just learned is something they don't believe in. And so they say, if a man has uh, no children and then dies, his brother must marry the widow and raise up the children. There were seven brothers. Each of them took one woman to be the wife. Each one of them died, leaving no uh, heir behind. So when the resurrection comes, whose wife will that woman be? And so, so, so in other words, they said, hey, Jesus, riddle me this. Right. Okay. And and their their thought is, is if Jesus says... Um, in the resurrection, she'll be X, Y, and Z's wife. Then they can say, aha, see, you're wrong. There is no such thing as a resurrection. And if Jesus um, says the other part of it, that there is no resurrection, uh, then uh, that will make the Pharisees mad who do believe in a resurrection. Uh, Jesus cuts through all the crap as he's good at doing, uh, being God and all. And he says, you're wrong because you don't know the scriptures uh, nor the power of God. 
And what Jesus says in the resurrection, there is no marriage. Uh, rather, the most important relationship for those who have been resurrected uh, is the relationship with God. And then he answers their question about the resurrection as well, and he says, don't you know the scriptures that say, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? The verb I am being in the present tense, um, that means God is their God now. And God is not a God of the dead, but a God of the living. And so he cuts off both of their uh, ends uh, in the trick question that they're asking so that they have no way to respond to him in front of the people. I think it's kind of interesting that when Jesus is dealing with the Sadducees, the, the words before our text, and then the first half of our text when he's dealing with the Pharisees, he deals with them the exact same way that he deals with Satan, who is tempting him in the wilderness uh, early on in uh, the Gospels, especially re we read that in Luke. And, and just to be completely forward, he deals with them the same way he deals with us, with his word. Okay, uh, sure. You had to steal my thunder. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Yeah, you always have to. You always have to uh, ex uh, figure out where I'm going with this. But he answers difficult questions with the clear word of God, and he does the same for us today. Exactly. So um, the the Sadducees wanted to trip up Jesus with regard to a question about the resurrection. Now the Pharisees want to trip trip up Jesus. But Vicar, instead of a question about the resurrection, what, what is the, the broad question that they are asking? Uh, what is the greatest of the Ten Commandments in the law? Okay, so we assume that they are asking about the Ten Commandments. What's the great commandment in the law? Which one of the ten is the most important? And then they're going to have a philosophical debate about which is the most important. Now, Pastor, I've heard you say on several occasions that there are more than Ten Commandments with regard to the Pharisees. What, what did you mean by that? Yeah, actually, um, in the um, Old Testament Pentateuch, the Pharisees would come up with 613 laws, um, 611 commandments with the first two of the two commandments, which were the only ones heard directly from God, they would say. And so they'd say there's all these different laws that exist in the Pentateuch, in the Torah, and they're asking of all those laws, which ones are the most important to keep? And once again, then we kind of have to know who the Pharisees are to understand what they're getting at. The Pharisees are not... Um, involved much in the temple because the Sadducees kind of have a monopoly on that. They're more local Jewish leaders. Uh, they teach uh, at the synagogues and in the uh, individual communities that existed in the, uh, the area of Palestine at the day. And they're more what the current Jews that still exist are, because when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, the Sadducees got destroyed with them. But the Pharisees were local in the small synagogues, and they're the ones who survived. So they have influenced a great deal of what Judaism is today with their legalism. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were. They were legalists. They said, we know all the laws, and we keep all the laws. And they even created new laws to try and protect the laws that God had given. 
Uh, for example, if the law said you could only drive 45 miles an hour, they would create a law to protect that, saying you can only drive 40 miles an hour. And anybody who drives more than 48 miles an hour is breaking the law because they're getting too close to breaking God's law. And so they're all about the law, doing what's right, and thinking that you can fulfill the law by your own actions. And so this question they're asking goes right down with what they believe. You know, what's the most important law for us to keep? They probably have an idea of what that is, and they're testing Jesus to try and trip him up in the same way the Sadducees were before. And my understanding with the different uh, groups or sects, S-E-C-T-S, of Pharisees is that certain groups or schools of Pharisees emphasized certain laws above another, and so this is pitting one group of the Pharisees against the against another. You know, and that's that's really what legalism is. Legalism tries to define the law down to a point where you can keep it. If they have 613 laws, they should all be equal. Keep them all. But they won't go there. And so we've got to have a hierarchy of what laws are more important. And that's what they're getting at. Now, Vicar, before you said something about the Ten Commandments. And when Jesus answers, he doesn't give them one of the Ten Commandments. He gives them something different, better, a summary. I mean, I don't know how you want to say it. How does Jesus answer? Well, Jesus answers uh, in a way that Luther summarizes for us the two tables of the law um, and gives a summary of the uh, first three and the last seven of the Ten Commandments. Love the Lord your God and second, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. And where did Jesus come up with those laws? Well, these are... From the Old Testament as well, these two summaries do exist, um, and I'd have to look up the exact verses here to talk about it. Um, I, I think it's Deuteronomy 5 or 6. Yeah, they're it? not right next to each other. They are separated a little bit, um, but they are uh, exact quotes from the Old Testament. I believe the one is cited from Leviticus 19.18, uh, and the other one then, um, let's see, 39 must be on the other page here. The other one is cited from Deuteronomy 6.5. And so we have Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. Uh, and so those two places are where it's quoted from. And um, on top of that, I, I think it's worth pointing out the way that these humans are dealing with God here. Uh, to try and justify themselves, both the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they're attempting to divide themselves from the other people, to put themselves above as if God's looking for the top echelon of people to be saved. Uh, and the only way that we can save ourselves then is by putting other people down and dividing ourselves from other people. And that's not the way that God works. God wants all to be saved, and he does so apart from the law. And so they're going about it the wrong way, even with their questions as far as coming to God. Now, Vicar said that uh, by uh, Jesus quoting the Old Testament, he was uh, summarizing the law and uh, Luther does the same thing. Uh, Luther talks about two tables of the law, the first three commandments, our relationship with God, commandments four through ten, our relationship with other people. Um, Jesus summarizes not only the ten commandments, but Jesus summarizes all 613 of these commandments, whether they're man-made or God-made or whatever, he summarizes everything in these two quotes. Um, you're nodding your head, Pastor. Explain what I'm talking about here. 
Well, all of the laws that exist uh, ultimately end up serving one of these two people, either God or your neighbor. And so when Jesus is saying that all the law can be summarized in those two words, he's speaking the exact truth. We're sinful people, and so we want the details, which is why those two laws get brought down to 613 laws, because we have the questions like, well, what if the vicar does this? Right? And I think some of the ones that they deal with, what if the vicar uh, accidentally kills my cow? You know, how do, I, how do I fulfill God's care for neighbor in that particular instance? And Scripture gets into those details, uh, which is important for us to realize how detailed God is and how hard it is to actually keep the law. Those two laws, love God, love your neighbor, are beautifully summarized in our post-communion canticle or post-communion collect that we pray so often that we would love God and serve one another. So this this law has not changed, has not changed one bit. So what is the point that Jesus is getting at? That's in the second half of our text. When we come back, we'll take a look again at our gospel reading, Matthew 22, 34 to 46. Proclaiming the one, don't change that dial. K-N-N-A-L-P 95.7 FM Lincoln, Nebraska Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline, Vicar Daniel Golden. We are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Each week we look at the readings for the upcoming Sunday worship service, and we'd love to have you join us for worship. Each Sunday, 8 and 1030, Sunday School for All Ages in Between. Wednesday evening, year-round at 630. Please join us. Check out our website. You can listen live on 95.7 if you're in and around Lincoln. Otherwise, uh, check out the uh, KNNA app or the various things we have available on our website. Vicar, we want to look again at our gospel reading, Matthew 22, 34 to 46. Would you read that again for us to get that fresh in our ears and our heart? When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, How is he his son? 
and no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Okay, in Matthew 22, we have first the Sadducees right before our text, and then the Pharisees at the beginning part of our text that are testing, tricking. Um, They do this quite often, trying to get Jesus to say something either against God's word or unpopular with the people. Jesus puts them in their place, teaches them clearly from God's word, All of the law is summarized in the Bible passages from uh, the Old Testament, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Pastor, at the end of our uh, last segment, I made a connection because that sounds awfully familiar to what the pastor prays quite often in the post-communion collect. After we have received the peace of God, the forgiveness of sins through the very body and blood of Jesus in with and under bread and wine, we pray that same prayer uh, that we should love God and love our neighbor. So um, help me out here. Can you connect the dots? Uh, Is Jesus telling us that this is how we are saved by loving God and loving our neighbor? Well, that might be what the Pharisees are hearing and thinking as they hear this word from Jesus. These are the two laws that are most important for you to keep. What Jesus essentially is saying you need to keep all the laws and to understand what all the Scripture teaches and says. And here's where the Pharisees are falling short, at least in their own self-assessment. Uh, they believe they are keeping the law. They believe they are uh, understanding the Scripture correctly. And so Jesus needs to point out some things to them that show them where they do fall short. Um, and that's what he's going to do here in a minute. As for us, because we are Christians and our identity in Christ uh, is there, uh, we are completely and totally forgiven in Christ. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus. And because that's what he sees, our identity then does seek to keep the law in all that we do, uh, even knowing that as we fail short, Christ forgives us all of our sins. Um, but that doesn't mean we are identified by sin. We're identified by Christ as we pray at the end of the communion service. Okay, so we we have we have a connection, but there is a big link that connects what's going on here with Jesus and giving the, the uh, summary of the law to the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the way that law is used in the life of a Christian who believes in the redemption of Jesus Christ. One, the, the keeping of the law is not a ladder of salvation, something that we can achieve, earn, merit, deserve. Salvation unto us has come by God's free grace and favor. And Jesus is clearly teaching. He does not leave the Pharisees in the law. He does not leave them with the message that uh, do this and you will live, and then he leaves. He gives them another question, but he doesn't give them a question to tease them or to trick them. He gives them a question to teach them the truth of the gospel. He says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Vicar, when you hear that word Christ, just on its base understanding, people from the Old Testament, New Testament, what is the Christ? The Christ is the anointed one, the one that will deliver the people of Israel out of, uh, out of their sin. 
So we're talking about the promised savior of the world. Yes. The promised savior of the world, uh, the proto-evangel, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. All the way through the scripture, we have the suffering servant, we have the great prophet, all of these messianic prophecies, uh, people are to be looking forward to the Christ. And so now Jesus says, well, if you guys are so busy looking for the Christ, um, let's talk a little bit about the Christ. Whose son is he? Why does he ask that question, Pastor? Well, that was the big debate at the time, and it goes all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God establishes David as king and says, uh, someone will sit on your throne uh, for all eternity. Uh, again, the, the dynastic oracle? Yes, okay. um, where God promises that this will be the case. And, um, of course, we know that David's kingdom, uh, after the reign of his son Solomon, falls apart and split into two. Uh, and even then, uh, the kings that come after that are basically puppets for uh, both uh, the Egyptians and for the uh, Persians and Babylonians and Assyrians and things like that. Uh, and so the kingdom that had existed in the Old Testament, the kingdom of Israel and Judah, they kind of uh, do not fulfill that. So they're looking for someone who will be descended from David, who will actually bring that promise of God to its fulfillment. And that person they're calling the Christ or the anointed one, and that's what they're watching for. Who is it going to be that's going to fulfill this promise of God? So they answer uh, the son of David. So they answer correctly. Am I right? They are, according to Second Samuel 7. Okay. And so Jesus does not leave them again by saying, oh, yeah, you're right, the son of David. He wants them to be more specific. Is that correct? Well, yeah, it's, it's right, but it's only half the answer. It's like when you did your math problem in, in school and the teacher also wanted you to show your work, but all you gave was the answer. It, you, you still miss half your points uh, as a result, and that's the same thing here. They have not given the complete answer, just a part of the answer. So now Jesus, as he has already in this chapter, he uses the Word of God to teach the truth about God and here specifically the truth about the Christ. He says, uh, how is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, calling the Christ Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under my feet. Is, uh, I believe that's Psalm 110. Is that correct? All right. So. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And that sounds like a riddle. But it is really the key to understanding the person and work of the Christ, the person and work of the Messiah. Pastor, explain. Well, yeah. Um, who is the Christ? Is he merely a man, just a worldly king that will sit on David's throne? Uh, or is he something more? And that's what they're getting at here, Jesus is getting at. Um, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. David says these words, but he calls the one who's coming after him, Lord. That's not the way things are done. Usually it's the other way around. You call your 
parent or grandparent lord or uh, sir or master or whoever, you save that uh, reverent word for the person who is older than you. But David's talking about someone who's coming after him, at least in human way of speaking. And that's because David sees the truth that the Christ has also come before him. Uh, And there's other places in Scripture where the same idea is there, that um, Christ has been in existence since before the founding of this world, uh, and therefore he is the first and the last, uh, the Alpha and the Omega, uh, the one who has no beginning, if you will. And and so David sees that and writes these words from Psalm 110, calling the Christ who will come after him Lord because he was before him. And Jesus understands that because that's who he is, and is trying to teach that to the Pharisees as well so that they can see Christ is not just a man, but also God and man together in one flesh. Before Abraham was, I am. This is a profound mystery with regard to the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a profound mystery with regard to the two natures of Jesus Christ, how he is 100% God and 100% man all at the same time. Uh, The Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is taught throughout Scripture, and this is God's marvelous plan that he would send his own son in human flesh to live, die, and rise again to bring about peace, the forgiveness of sins that only God can bring about. Our time is short, Pastor. Uh, Comments on what I just said. Well, yeah, and this is even uh, clearly put forth in the words of the Athanasian Creed, uh, which my daughter's been memorizing. She's just got just about got it done, and so it's important to see there. Uh, It's also necessary to confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is at the same time both God and man. God begotten from the substance of the Father before all ages, and man born from the substance of his mother in this age, perfect God and perfect man, together uh, in one person. Luther teaches us uh, very succinctly in the meaning to the second article of the Creed, I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from all eternity, and also true man, is my Lord. That's what we're talking about here at the end of Matthew twenty-two thirty-four to 46. We need to take a break. This is Proclaiming the One. When we come back, as we look at our readings for the 18th Sunday after Trinity, we're going to look at our Old Testament reading, Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 21. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. Faith looks to Jesus Christ alone, who did for all the world atone. He is our one Redeemer. That's what Jesus is teaching the Pharisees in our text, our gospel reading that we heard about in our last two segments. That's what Jesus is teaching us. The law is a marvelous gift 
It cannot save us. It is a marvelous tool to teach Christians how to live their life, sometimes referred to as the third use of the law or sanctification. We want to take a look now in our last segment here as we look at the readings for the 18th Sunday after Trinity. We want to look at our Old Testament reading from Deuteronomy 10, and we want to see that same theme coming out in these words. Vicar? And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good? Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set in his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. So much in this particular text. The first few verses here, Deuteronomy 10, 12, 13, and I guess 12 and 13 specifically, really summarize very well what we talked about with regard to Matthew 22, the work of the law, loving God, loving one another, now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Pastor, what does God require of Israel? Well, it's interesting, especially considering the small catechism and how we understand the first commandment, uh, which is essentially have faith in God, believe in God, uh, fear, love, and trust in God above all things, to hear what we hear here. How about that? Hear what we hear here. Hear, hear. Hear, hear. It says... The Lord God requires of you to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. In other words, essentially what we say the meaning of the first commandment is uh, to believe God, uh, to trust in him, to understand his forgiveness and grace and mercy and identity, uh, which is what we are able to do through the work of the Holy Spirit pointing us to Jesus Christ who fulfills all that. Uh, And so that's kind of a neat thing to see there. So we have that fear uh, thing coming out. And then since you talked about that fear, skip down to verse 20. It says, you shall fear the Lord your God. Um, It says uh, he's done terrifying things. So should that mean that I'm afraid of him? Well, this fear is uh, kind of a healthy fear. Um, The same as, you know, I have um, a fear of heights. And so I... It doesn't mean I don't climb mountains or go up on towers or things like that, 
but it also means I'm not going to be standing on the top of a tower without a safety harness waving my arms around. It gives us a healthy respect for the identity of the thing that we're afraid of. And that's the same idea here. Uh, we fear God knowing who he is and what he can do. But at the same time, we also love the, the Lord because of what he's promised to do, which is uh, one of those, the fear is because of um, our sin. The love is because of his mercy and grace. And that's both these things are true at the same time. Okay, so that becomes a proper distinction between law and gospel then on how we look at God who can send us to hell. Uh, he has that power. He has that ability. He has that right. right. But at the same time, he's also a loving and merciful God who had Jesus suffered the torments of hell on our behalf. And we, we show this fear then in our divine services in what we call reverence, uh, in that we dress appropriately when we come to God's house, we act appropriately within the sanctuary, we kneel when we receive the Lord's Supper because of who God is, uh, and all the rest of the things that display this reverence, that uh, all stems out of that fear, love, and trust of God. And we, we have a lot to learn and a, and a long ways to go and grow in that reverence aspect. Uh, Vicar, verse 14 says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. How can God make that claim that he owns the heavens and the earth? He is the creator, ex nihilio, right? We're, um, with his mere word, he created the heavens and the earth. And he who creates it has domain over it. So we have, once again, as we have oftentimes throughout our scripture readings, we have a clear reference to God as creator. God created it, so God owns it. He owns the heavens. He owns the earth. He owns everything in the universe. And then the next verse says, yet, verse 15 of Deuteronomy 10, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. God owns everything, and yet he chose the people of Israel. Why, Pastor? Well, uh, it is because of that offspring that is promised. Um, the people of Israel are the ones through whom the Savior is going to be born. And so God picks them to be that particular family, if you will, that Jesus will be born from uh, to earn salvation for all humankind. And so in that regard, uh, the nation of Israel does have a special place in God's heart because that's where his son is going to be born. So connect that to us today. Um, you did not choose me. God's word says, but I chose you. Can we make this same connection then to how God calls us and chooses us uh, in the waters of holy baptism, how he calls and chooses us as the gospel is proclaimed into our ears? Is that a fair connection? It is across the board that uh, this, this is the way God works. Uh, he does not look upon our uh, good works and try to get us into heaven in that regard. It's always he chooses us, he comes to us, he gives to us, he provides for us. And this is kind of the uh, simple way to discover if something is law or gospel, uh, a work we need to do or a promise that God has done, is who's running the verbs. And in all the gospel uh, situations within the scriptures, God is running the verbs, doing the work, and we are passive receivers. And so, uh, yes, this is the, the way it is across the board. So God chooses us, not because of some innate quality in us. 
God chooses us not because he could look into the future and see how good we would be. God chooses us by grace, through faith, on account of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, because God has chosen us, because we fear the Lord in faith, God says, verse 16, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and no longer be stubborn. Uh, Vicar, what is what is God through Moses here in Deuteronomy 10 telling us? Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. Is he talking about uh, self-inflicted amateur heart surgery? No, he's saying, um, I loved you, so your heart should be created as clean and therefore uh, no longer be stubborn, stubborn, but love others as he gets to in the following verses. What one word that we use a lot in church might uh, summarize what that verse is all about? Baptism. Baptism. And what happens in baptism? Word is added to the water. Old Adam, sin, death, and the devil are drowned away. Okay, and uh, connect us to baptism part four in Luther's small catechism. What does such baptizing with water indicate? It indicates that we are created with a new birth, a, re- a rebirth and renewal in the Holy Spirit. Okay, uh, God calls us to a daily repentance. That's the word I was fishing for, daily repentance. And that's how we circumcise our heart. We repent. We hear the word of God and we repent being sorry for our sins and clinging to the promises that God has given us, that he swears by himself, that are sealed with the very blood of Jesus. So then in verse 18 and 19, it's talking about uh, justice for the widow, the sojourner, um, love the sojourner because you were a sojourner. Um, I'm but a stranger here. Heaven is my home. I am a sojourner. What, what is this loving your neighbor, loving the widow, loving the sojourner? How does that tie into what we've been talking about, Pastor? Well, it springs out of the, the justice part where God executes justice for all these people. He does that in Jesus on the cross. And I think this is an important thing that we need to remember better in our world today is that uh, every single person that exists on the earth is a person that Jesus has died for. This is objective justification. And so in objective justification, we are able to love all these people because we know that Christ has first loved them. So we're talking about a faith response that does with others, treats others, forgives others, loves others the same way that God treats, loves, and forgives us. Exactly. That peace that we have with God, going all the way back to our first segment, brings us an inner peace through the forgiveness of sins, and that motivates us, if I can use that word, to live at peace with one another. Thanks be to God. Vicar, would you bring things to a close with the collect of the day for the 18th Sunday after Trinity? Oh God, because without you, we are not able to please you. Mercifully grant that your Holy Spirit may in all things direct and rule our hearts. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 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 For Pastor Moline and Vicar Golden, I am Pastor Clint Poppy. Thanks for tuning in to Proclaiming the One. Sunday morning when you get up, drink your coffee, read your paper, pray for your pastor, but most importantly, go to church. 
God's richest blessings in Christ. We'll see you again next week.